Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in Isaiah 53. Get to go last after lunch, go fourth in a lineup of great preachers. Uh, so I get to be the inexplicably the cleanup batter to the other three guys. Uh, but to stick with a baseball analogy, that's why I picked Isaiah 53, because if you hit a bunt with Isaiah 53, you still hit a home run. And so <laughs> pick, pick a good text. Now, we're almost a quarter of the way through the year. We're almost through March. And, you know, at the beginning of every new year, we become obsessed with, with healthy living. We become obsessed with healthy bodies. And by we, I don't mean me, as you can, as you can tell. I mean, uh, American culture becomes obsessed with that. We are told to exercise daily, get lots of sleep. We're told to eat whole foods. We're told to eat organic foods, which is code word for expensive foods. We're told to eat kale, which, to quote Ron Swanson, is the food that my food eats. (laughs) Some of us, some tell us not to eat processed food, which means no bagel bites. And even some have begun an assault on bacon itself. We are living in the last days indeed. (laughs) But what I want us to be reminded this afternoon as we think on the topic of pastors who care about sound doctrine, that while bodily training is of some value, that godliness is of value in every way. So there's nothing more important for our people to know and to think on than to think on God and to think on who He is and what He has done and what He is doing in the world. So I wrestled with several different texts uh, for this topic that Ed gave me and thought about Psalm 16, thought about Ephesians 4, any number of the passages in the pastorals. But ultimately, I settled in on Isaiah 53 for a couple of reasons. And I'm going to talk through that briefly, and then we'll turn our attention to the text. But as we consider this topic, I just wanted to think through, if, if we as pastors have a shallow view of the gospel, if we as pastors have a shallow view of sound doctrine, we will have very little of eternal value to give to our people. And so I wanted to pick a text that will help us work through what I think is central to the gospel. But second, and as Brian kind of hammered home, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 that we are to persist in watching our life and doctrine, for so by doing we will save both ourselves and our hearers. So an important aspect of caring about sound doctrine is the perseverance and the maturity of our people so that they make it to the, the finish line. And nothing quite shakes our people's faith or makes them not want to persevere like the topic of suffering is what we see in Isaiah chapter 53, this topic of suffering. So this afternoon, I thought I would unpack a core doctrine of the faith and show how I have in the past applied it uh, to my people's life, applied this sound doctrine of penal substitution to their life for their maturity and their perseverance in the faith. And even hopefully, as we are a group of pastors who have been through a couple of tough years, hopefully apply it to our lives as well. Now, years ago, I remember hearing a man named John Lennox speak to the problem of suffering, speak to the problem of evil. John is a mathematician at Oxford University, very brilliant man, multiple PhDs. Uh, He debates some of the most well-known atheists in the world, and he also happens to be the uncle of of Kristen Getty. We've seen some of, uh, sang some of Kristen's songs uh, this morning. And John told a group of us who were preparing for ministry, this is more than a decade ago, that the issue of suffering and the issue of the problem of evil was the hardest topic he faced in his conversations with, with unbelievers, in his conversations with atheists, and he said it's going to be the hardest issue you face as well. And that's true, and we know that's true, not just because of what suffering poses philosophically for us. We know that's true because we all know what it means to hurt. We all know what it means to experience suffering. 
which is why it is necessary to remind our people that we have deep resources. We have sound doctrine to address the most difficult topics we will face. And so this afternoon, I want to look at a passage that I say is flowing with living water that will quench our thirst, that will give us what we need to think on topics like this. Indeed, this afternoon, we stand on holy ground. The truth is, anytime we come to the Scriptures, we stand on holy ground, and yet there is something about Isaiah 53. This astounding text penned 700 years before the events it will detail, 700 years before that weekend outside the gates of Jerusalem where the entire world would change. And we will see in predictive detail the work of our King to glorify God through our redemption where He climactically deals with sin and with suffering and deals with them forever. Now as we prepare our hearts to read it, I want to give a couple of amazing quotes about Isaiah 53 as we again prepare our hearts to hear the Word. Cal Yates, an Old Testament scholar from years gone by, said of Isaiah 53 that it is the Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy. And the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon called Isaiah 53 a Bible in miniature. And then German theologian Franz Dalitz said this, and I love this, it is the most central, the deepest, and the loftiest thing that the Old Testament prophecy outstripping itself has ever achieved. Listen to these words. It looks as if it had been written beneath the cross at Golgotha. So I want to read this Bible in miniature, and then I want to pray this this afternoon that we will be reminded of the beauty of the gospel, but that we'll also be reminded of the power of the gospel in the lives of our people. Let me read, and I'll start in Isaiah 52 and verse 13. And the prophet writes as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations and kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, He was despised, and we esteemed Him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray. Father, now as we once again turn to the Word, Father, I pray that you would help me to preach with confidence in your word for the good of your servants. Father, would you encourage us this afternoon? Father, would you help us to once again look deep into the gospel? Father, to see its beauty, but also to see its power. I'm reminded every time I preach of what the great Baptist theologian Andrew Fuller said, that the pulpit is an awesome thing, a chance to address a group of mortals about their eternal interests. And so, Father, now would you help us to think about our eternal interests? And, Father, as we think on those, would you help us 
to then live lives that are persevering for the good of those around us, but ultimately for the glory of your name. Father, certainly now would you sanctify us in the truth. We know your word is truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the first thing you learned about Jesus? Or the first thing you remember learning about Jesus? Was it that he walked on water? Or maybe that he multiplied fish and bread? Maybe it was that he turned water into wine. If you're a Baptist, you didn't learn that until college. But But when you really think about it, what is the first thing you learned about Jesus? From my earliest recollections as a young child at North Lake Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, my earliest recollection is learning the song, Jesus Loves Me. And of course, if you know that song, you know that Jesus loves us because the Bible tells us so, but that begs the question, how does the Bible tell us about Jesus' love? How does the Bible tell us what is central in that love? And I would argue that central in that love is the theme of substitution. In fact, if you've read the wonderful work of John Stott, The Cross of Christ, he argues that substitution is the central theme of the Bible. He writes this, The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. And in this Mount Everest of a text in front of us today, we will see with a prophetic glance in vivid detail the substitutionary work of our Savior on behalf of sinners like us. Now here's what's going on in what is called one of the servant songs of Isaiah. The text is divided up into five stanzas. The stanzas are three verses each. Ironically, uh, the verses start up in chapter 52. Calvin, in fact, says that whoever gave the divisions here did a massive disservice to the text here. But each stanza has the twin themes of, of humiliation and yet also the exaltation of the suffering servant. And before we dig in, I think it's important to consider the question, who is the suffering servant? Because it does seem obvious to us, but it hasn't always been an obvious answer. In fact, historically, there were three main interpretations to who the suffering servant of Isaiah was. It had been, first, it had been interpreted corporately. The suffering servant is Israel, or the suffering servant is the faithful remnant of Israel. And yet that interpretation falls flat since Israel cannot atone for her own sins much less can Israel atone for the sins of the world. Second, it was interpreted individually. Perhaps it is Isaiah himself or Hezekiah or Moses or David. And yet ultimately what is said of this servant cannot be said of any of those men, that he had done no violence, nor was there deceit in his mouth. And then finally, it has been interpreted messianically. Thus, the suffering servant is the coming king who would sit on the throne of David. However, it is clear that even the apostles do not initially interpret this text messianically. In fact, Peter would rebuke our Lord when Jesus said he must go to the cross. And the apostles on the road to, on the road to Emmaus are despondent after the cross. That's why Jesus has to remind them there in Luke 24 of his mission. And what a wonderful mission it is for us. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer and then enter into his glory? You see, following the cross and the resurrection, the apostles' eyes are open to the truth that had been revealed centuries before in places like Isaiah 53, that yes, the Messiah would receive glory. Yes, the Messiah would be exalted, but he would be exalted not by conquest. He would be exalted by crucifixion. And that is good news for sinners like us this morning, is it not? So let's work our way through the text and each point 
I'll try to emphasize both his substitution, but also an aspect of suffering that goes along with the suffering servant's work. First thing we see in the text in chapter 52 is this. The servant is disfigured so that we might become pleasing in the sight of God. Look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. It's amazing here we see, first, the suffering servant will succeed in his mission through his disfigurement. Isaiah predicts he will deal prudently here in verse 13, or he will act wisely, which simply means that Jesus, the suffering servant, will accomplish his purposes. He is pictured as a new and better Solomon who succeeds in his mission because of his great wisdom. And his success will mean that he will be highly exalted. This entails that he will be resurrected, he will ascend, and he will take his place at the Father's right hand. And yet what is striking in the text is that this exaltation will come about through disfigurement. As you see in the text, his appearance or his form or his outward features are so marred that when they're done with him, the text is telling us he won't even look human. He's so disfigured, in fact, that those looking on are astonished at what the brutality has done to his physical appearance. And we know if we've ever studied crucifixion, that's an appropriate description of what became of our Lord. Yet it's one of the great ironies of the cross that this is exactly how God's servant will accomplish his purposes of rescuing wayward sinners. It will be through his disfigurement. In verse 15, however, though Isaiah connects how grotesque the servant becomes with how effective he will be in saving the nations. We get a foretelling of the Great Commission here, right? We get a foretelling when it says that he will sprinkle or he will cleanse or he will save many nations. And notice the turn from verse 14. Notice the turn from humiliation to exaltation. In verse 14, they are astonished by his disfigurement, but in verse 15, they are astonished by his success to the point that the mightiest men of earth shall shut their mouths because of his work. Mark would write of this centuries later, right, when he would say, but Jesus made no further answer, and Pilate was amazed. Consider then this afternoon the Lord of glory, and we enjoyed the Lord's Supper last night here at this church, and consider this, the Lord of glory allowed his body to be broken. He allowed his form to become grotesque so that we might become pleasing in the sight of God. So that it can be said of us what is said of him, that this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. But second, the servant became common and abandoned so that we might be redeemed. We see that in the first stanza of chapter 53. Here's what Isaiah writes. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah is saying of this servant that although he is divine, he is he's the very arm of the Lord, that no one would recognize him as such. No one would recognize him as a king. No one would recognize him as a savior. Certainly no one would recognize him as God in the flesh. And why is that? Well, he comes from unlikely origins. He seems insignificant. He is a 
young plant. He is not a strong tree. There's no majesty or beauty to him either. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was ugly. It just simply means in his incarnation, he would look like everyone else. He would just be, as one commentator said, he would just be a man among men. But not only was he common, but because he was common, he would be despised. We've heard talk about despising today. He would be rejected. He would suffer to the point that men would turn their faces away from him. Because of this, this meant that he also is a man who is acquainted with tears. He is a man of sorrows. Now, I don't know the ages of everyone in this room, but uh, when you were growing up, did you ever hear a song that went a little something like this? Big girls, they don't cry, yi, yi. Not the song you'd think you'd hear me sing today up here on the stage. <laughs> well, I don't know if you've ever heard that song, but growing up, I would often hear the adage that big boys don't cry. To quote Dwight from The Office, false. <laughs> you know, growing up, my favorite memory verse was the memory verse that just went something like this, Jesus wept. Because it was the easiest one to remember, thus the easiest one to get the cookie or the juice or whatever they were giving out that day. But brothers, as I got older, that verse has taken on so much more significance. It means that Jesus is a king of compassion who weeps with the hurting, who weeps over his friend Lazarus. It's because Jesus knows what it means to be human. In fact, we know from... The theologians, we know from the Scriptures that in order to save men, Jesus became everything it meant to be a man. In order to be our sin bearer, He became everything it means to be human. Jesus became a common man to save common men. I love this quote from the old Baptist preacher R.G. Lee. As we consider the importance of sound doctrine, I want us to consider the staggering magnitude of the Incarnation. A doctrine that some people say is irrelevant which is ridiculous. But that the arm of the Lord was also the one who grew up before him like a young plant. And here's what he says of the incarnation. I love this. He says, what deep descent from the heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth, from the from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse. From the glory place to the gory place. In Bethlehem, listen to this, in Bethlehem, humility and glory and their extremes were joined. Born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough. No room for Him who made all rooms. No place for Him who made and knows all places. The deep humiliation of the Creator, born of the creature, woman. But in His descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to Him, He descends to us. No wonder Queen Lucy can say in the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia, yes, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. Jesus became common man, but Jesus also suffered. He was rejected, he was despised, and he was deserted and left all alone. There's been much mention of Gethsemane today, but what happens to Jesus in Gethsemane is so instructive for us. And for time's sake, I'll just summarize some of it. But just know this, Jesus knows what it means to be abandoned by those who are closest to Him. Jesus knows what it means to suffer at the hands of those closest to Him. In Gethsemane, Jesus is in anguish. He is falling to the ground. We've talked about this already. He is falling on the ground under the, the weight of what is about to become of Him. And during His anguish, Ed has already pointed this out, the disciples are falling asleep. And then when He's arrested, the text simply says this, they all left Him and fled. 
And then Mark's account records something that's almost funny when you read it. It says this, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Or if you're from the South like me, he ran away naked. And that seems an odd thing to add to the Gethsemane account, that one of them ran away without his clothes on. Some believe it's Mark himself, but Mark likely included this strange detail to point out that at daybreak, on the day of the crucifixion, that our Savior is utterly alone to face the wrath of men and then face the wrath of God. Loneliness is one of the hardest things humans ever have to endure. But hear me this afternoon. Jesus became common so that we might experience glory, and Jesus was utterly alone and abandoned, temporarily forsaken by His Father, so that ultimately we will never be forsaken or abandoned. For lo, He is with us. He is our Emmanuel. Now as we turn our attention to verse 4 and to the third point, we come to six of the clearest verses in all the Bible of what the theologians call the penal substitution of Christ, of what Christ has done on behalf of sinners like us to satisfy the the wrath of God. Point three, the servant is crushed so that we might become whole. Verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Some of the most important questions that human beings can ever ask are often the ones that don't get asked, but one of the most important questions is simply this. How can sinners come into the presence of a holy God? How can we, in a sense, return into the presence of a holy God? And these verses tell us very clearly through the beaten and crushed substitutionary servant. And why was he crushed? We see pronouns here that, that point out He did all of this for us. I mean, notice substitution in the text. For us, as ten times we or us or our is used to point out that he, he takes our sorrow, He takes our sickness, He takes our pain, He takes our sin, He takes our suffering, He takes our penalty. Here we come face to face with the reality that the suffering of this servant is not His fault but ours. And the brutality of it all will show just how deep our sinfulness is. But listen again in light of suffering. The brutality and the agony of it all shows the extent to which he will go so that we might be made right with God. So that we might be beneficiaries of his merciful work. 700 years before the nails would go deep into his wrist, we are told that he will be pierced for our sins. We are told in verse 5 that he would be crushed. That could be literally translated, he will be pulverized into dust for our wickedness. And what brings us peace? What brings us shalom? It comes from his punishment. Verse 5, his chastisement. Where does our healing come from? Where does our wholeness come from? Again, the irony of the cross, right? Our healing comes from his wounds. Literally, verse 5 could read, the slashes or blows that cut him heal us. No wonder Franz Dalich would say that this looks as though it has been written beneath the cross at Golgotha. In verse 6, Isaiah says, We are all sinners who have gone astray. The Lord has put on Him the iniquity, literally the He has put on Him the wicked guilt of us all. 
We see here what theologians call imputation. And here's how one commentator puts it. He says, laid could literally be translated cause to meet, which is descriptive of the divine act of gathering into one place onto one substitutionary victim, the sins of all sinners who the Lord purposed to save. We see here this concept of the great exchange, do we not? That which should have been ours has become his. That which should have only been his has become ours. That which should have have pulverized us into dust has now pulverized him into dust. Again, returning to R.G. Lee, I love how he captures the great exchange when he says this at the cross, Christ became for us all that God must judge so that we by faith in him might become all that God cannot. Consider the weight of this exchange. Think it back again to Gethsemane. Jesus is in extreme anguish. He is, he is sweating drops of blood, but that is not because he fears the physical pain of Calvary, as horrific as it might be. We know Jesus doesn't even fear his own death. He lays it down willingly. We know many martyrs have gone to their deaths, painful deaths, singing as they go, and we know that our Lord is no wimp. Jesus is in anguish in Gethsemane because Jesus is not about to die as a martyr. He's about to die as a substitute. The sinless one is so overwhelmed because he knows what he is about to become for us. He is about to become our sin bearer, the object of the full and furious wrath of God against our sin and our rebellion and our wickedness. He does all of this willingly for the glory of His Father, to put the attributes of His Father on display, He does this also for the good of those that He will redeem. And He does this willingly. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And as for His generation, who considered that He was cut off, literally hacked out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of My people, and they made His grave with the wicked and with the rich man in His death, although He had done no violence and there was no deceit in His mouth. We see clear prophecy throughout these verses, and for time's sake, I'm going to move quickly and you can check it out on your own time. But He endures all of this without opening His mouth or defending Himself. Mark 14, 61, He remained silent and made no answer. He's unfairly tried in oppression and judgment. Verse 8, the Sanhedrin in Rome set up kangaroo courts. We see this violent verbiage of what happens to him that he is cut off or hacked out of the land of the living. He will die on the cross for the sins of God's people. He leaves no offspring. There will be no succeeding generations coming from him initially. They make his grave with the wicked. He dies next to robbers and thieves and murderers and sinners. And yet they make his grave with a rich man. He is given the tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea, all of this done to him for us, though he was the truly innocent one. There is no violence in his mouth. Think about this. This is how innocent he is. He never said even one idle word. This is how he could be our substitute. This is how we can answer the question of how sinners can come into the presence of a holy God. This is how the sacrificial system of the Old Testament will be fulfilled as the truly innocent, spotless lamb will take the place of the guilty. And this is how God can be both just in dealing with sin and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Final stanza, the servant is killed so that we might have life. Isaiah writes this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when, he, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall 
see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Again, his wisdom shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and I shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Brothers, this is the length to which the God of the universe will go to make sure that we can be right with Him. It's an amazing thing that we see here. And I will not be able to fully do justice to what is happening here in the text, but this is the sake, this is the lengths to which He will go for the redemption of His people. It is His will to crush His Son. It is His will to put His Son to grief in order to atone for our guilt. Jesus at the cross will endure the wrath of hell due our wickedness. Hour after hour, He will hang in our place. And listen to this, the depths of His work, His own soul will make an offering for our guilt. And yet, even though it's, it's Friday, there are tones of Sunday here, right? There's tones of res- resurrection. Though He is cut out of the land of the living with no generations, that is not the end of the story. For eventually He will see His offspring, that is us, and He shall prolong His days, that is resurrection. Yes, as the famous sermon says, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Again, <laughs> again the irony, right? This, the servant's song ends where it began. It ends with exaltation. And yet nothing in between has looked like triumph. Jesus, to obey His Father, Jesus, to redeem us, undergoes humiliation, He undergoes suffering, He undergoes crucifixion, and yet those are the very things that lead to His exaltation, success, and victory. He's victorious in resurrection. His days are prolonged, verse 10. He's victorious in justifying many. Many are counted righteous, verse 11. And He is victorious in the giving of gifts. We finally see the picture of a conquering king kindly dividing up the spoils of war. He will divide His portion with the many. He will be so unlike my my almost two-year-old, Ada Shea, who wakes up every morning with a puppy and bunny in her hand, and I beg her to hand them over to me, and she refuses. She doesn't understand, I bought those for you. In fact, I can buy you more of those. I may even have enough money I can buy stock in the company that makes those. And yet she won't let me see them. No, our great king is so much, so unlike our little heathen. He will gladly hand over in his kindness what is rightfully his to his people. All of this made possible, verse 12, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. But don't miss verse 11, particularly as we think about applying sound doctrine to suffering. He was pleased to do this. It says, out of the anguish of his soul, he will see what his work will accomplish, and in it he will be satisfied. You know, there are some so-called theologians who try to deny the theological concept penal substitution. They say that it is just divine child abuse. But they could not be more wrong and they could not be more heretical. Brothers, Jesus willingly lays down His life because He trusts His Father, because He knows what it will produce in His redeemed, and He knows it serves an eternally greater purpose. Hear me this afternoon, especially if you may be struggling in the ministry today. Jesus is pleased to undergo suffering. He is 
pleased to undergo the crushing of the Father at the cross. Listen to this. He is pleased to do that in order to see what that will accomplish in you and what that will accomplish in your people. What an amazing Savior. Every eternal benefit we have is because of His substitutionary work. We've already heard it said, for the joy set before Him, the joy of obeying His Father and seeing what it will produce in the ones He saves, He endured the cross and despised its shame. The author of life takes on death so that His people might have life. So in light of that, some quick takeaways as we think about caring about sound doctrine so that we can hopefully, when we say we care about sound doctrine, really what we're trying to do is make the profound things of God accessible to our people. So three quick takeaways on suffering in light of Isaiah 53. And the first one is simply this, and we all know this, we will suffer. Suffering comes to us all. We know that some suffering comes to us as a result of our own sin, and we know that some suffering comes to us as a result of living in a fallen world. We will not always be able to trace the reasons for our suffering, but we do know we will suffer. And even more than that, as we've thought about Kevin talking to us about holiness. Even more than that, we know that if we desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we will face persecution. And we know that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We should be amazed this morning, though. Somebody has dealt with that suffering, whether that suffering that we brought upon ourselves or that suffering that we face just living in a fallen world. His name is Jesus. He has already been down the Calvary Road, and He solves both kinds of suffering. Number two, let's trust the promises of God. I have three in mind to help us make sense of suffering, though these are certainly not exhaustive. First, promise of God, He is in control. He is the Creator. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign over the affairs of men. He is not caught off guard by anything that happens to us. Number two, He is good. God is light, and in Him there, there is no darkness. Even when we cannot see it, Even when we cannot see what He is doing, God is in control, God is good, and Paul reminds us He is working all these things out toward our ultimate good. I want to share just a little simple resource that we were given recently, and I think it's a really helpful resource that makes sound doctrine accessible to people who are are suffering through, through miscarriage. We recently had another miscarriage, and somebody gave us this little book called The Moon is Always Round. And the book is simply this. It's, it's simply trying to teach a child who's at home waiting for their brother or sister to come home why that child did not come home. And the whole point of the book is the dad always telling the son when the moon doesn't look full, he's always saying, I know you can't see it, son, but the moon is always round. Tonight it looks like a fingernail, but yes, son, the, the moon is always round. And the point of the book is simply this. God is always good. Even when we can't see it, even when we don't know what He's doing, we can trust His promises that God is always good. Places like Isaiah 53 should remind us of that. Final promise, suffering is not wasted. Paul reminds us our suffering is doing something, is producing something, it is working out for us an eternal weight of glory. Indeed, likely on the last day we will see all of our suffering in light of eternity, and in it we will be satisfied. We will be satisfied with what it has produced in us. You know, apologetically, we likely are not going to have all the answers to the questions of you know, evil and pain and suffering, but we have enough in the revealed will, uh, Word to begin to deal with the issue. First, we can trust that we serve a good and all-powerful God that has reasons for allowing these things to happen even when we don't understand it. But we can also 
know that in the purposes of God, God has allowed a world in which human beings are responsible and moral agents who can disobey and thus bring sin and bring suffering into the world. Because in the end, the world in which we live because of sin, in the end, human beings will have a far greater understanding of who God is and what God is like and what His character is like and what He is doing in the world. Because we have gone through a fallen world on the last day, we will have a better understanding of all of His divine attributes. We will know more fully what His holiness looked like. We will know more fully what His justice looked like. We will know goodness and mercy and grace and redemption and we will know love. Indeed, we might not have all the answers in this world, but we do have deep resources for suffering. We have His Word. We have His people. We have unhindered access to the throne room of grace. Though we don't have all the answers, we do have answers to some of the most important questions we will ever ask, like, does God love us and is God going to do anything about suffering? Isaiah 53 clearly tells us, yes. I mentioned John Lennox at the beginning. I never forgot the story he shared when he was addressing suffering. He talked about how years ago he was at a a synagogue somewhere in Europe, and there was a South American woman there, and uh, he's a Christian. She was a practicing Jew, and while he's there, he's talking to her, and along the wall are pictures of the different feasts of Israel. And he says he begins to take translator's license and begins to tell her how all of these feasts ultimately point to and are fulfilled in Christ. Starting with the Passover and and moving around the room, and yet he says, I was not prepared for what was going to happen when I got to the middle of the room. Because in the middle of the room was a door, and above the door was a picture of the gates at Auschwitz. And then when you walk through, there was pictures in the room of the experiments that Dr. Mankley had done on children. And this is what he said. He said when we got to this picture, the young woman put out her arms and said, What does your God say about that? And Lennox said to her, I would not insult the memory of your family who perish in the gas chambers by offering you a simplistic answer because I don't have one. He said again to us, this is the hardest problem we'll face. He said, atheists don't have the problem. They say there is no God, and that's the solution. The intellectual problem solved, and that's it. He said this, but then the suffering still remains. So I said to this young woman, I want to say something to you that you're going to find hard. But you know that I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And she said, yes, I know you believe that. He said, well, you're going to find this difficult, and I understand, but just try to think with me for a moment. Suppose He was the Messiah. Suppose He was the Son of God. Then I just have one question to ask you. What's He doing on that cross? He said, that shows me that God does not remain distant from the problem of suffering and evil, but has become part of it. Lennox said, as I said those words, tears gushed down her face, and she said, why has no one ever told me that? Lennox continued thus, and he said this, Christian, in the end, the hardest problem you're going to face is the theodicy problem, the problem of God and suffering. There is only one answer on the market that begins to make sense of it all, and it's not the atheist, pitiless universe, nor is it Darwin's survival of the fittest. It is the one who hung on the cross, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers, in a fallen and broken world, may we remember that God has demonstrated to us 
his absolute love in a bloody cross and his absolute power in a vacated tomb. Which is why I want to close with this poem from Edward Shillito, an English minister who wrote this poem called Jesus of the Scars. He wrote it right after World War I and the suffering he had seen. And here's what he writes. We must have thee, O Jesus of the Scars. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou did stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. And you see what I learned as a little boy at North Lake Baptist Church still rings true. Jesus loves me. This I know. Isaiah 53 tells me so. Brothers, we are told and we were reminded by Brian, if we now in turn love him who has loved us, we will feed his people. Let's give them sound doctrine because bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the current life, but also the one to come. May we feed his sheep. May we love his people. Father, we are so thankful for your word that trains and instructs us in righteousness. And Father, we're thankful for your word and your gospel, deep resources we have to face the toughest things in life. Father, I pray for the men in this room, particularly the pastors in this room who may be struggling. Father, may they be reminded of your absolute love for them and your demonstration of it in the cross. Father, may we all be challenged by this. Would you please use everything that has happened today to transform us from one degree of glory to the next? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.